I guess there's just a bunch of Joshes on staff. I'm one of them. Josh Quad, I get to work with college students. In fact, two weeks from now will be the 20-year anniversary of when I started working here at the church. And I've been working with college students. Oh, thanks. You're not college students. You don't have to endure this. I've been working with college students all these years, and I think I've learned a thing or two about college students over these years. Smart Aleck College student actually pointed this out. They said, if your ministry was a person, it would be getting ready to go in its junior year of college. I said, shut up. Oh, the kids. I'm sorry. I forgot. It's family Sunday. Be quiet. I said, be quiet. I love you. You're awesome. Let's go be friends. So, uh, and so I've learned some lessons over the years working with college students. I want to share a couple of those with you. One of them that I learned is that the college season of life is less about getting a degree and more about discovering who you are. It's true, especially as the people have been going to school for six, seven years. Uh, another thing I've learned about college students is a great time for students to discover what drives them as people and to understand their story and to kind of unpack their childhood and their experiences, both good and bad, and help them understand how that shapes them and their perspective on life. There's another thing I learned about working with college students. College students are always hungry. Always hungry. Okay, and this is true. I'm I'm not making this up. Like, everything that we do usually has some type of food or something to drink component to it. Whenever I'm meeting with a student first time, I'll invite them over to my office. You know, maybe we'll have, I always have a Keurig or something in the fridge. Or I'll take them to my favorite places, Zinc, one of my favorite places, the Tropical Smoothie Cafe. We'll go get a smoothie. And just to help them, like, break the ice. Hey, let me get to know you. Let me tell 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 me about your life and where you're from and what you're studying, what you're majoring, what you love. It's always good to always come to the table prepared, to have something ready for college students because they are always hungry. My wife and I, we feed college students a lot. And I'm not talking about how, the frequency. I'm just talking about the amount of food because there's just a lot that goes into it. A couple of years ago, I got together with some other college ministers, church-based college ministers, not a lot of us in the world. We got the group of eight of us together, a national kind of gathering. And I, as an icebreaker, I said, how much of your budget do you spend on food in a given year? Universally, it was 25% of their yearly budget was spent on feeding college students. It's true. It's an important type of thing. And I've learned this principle. Never come to the table empty-handed. This principle of that we always have something to bring. And usually it's drink or something to eat, and, which is really hard. And I'm impressed by ourselves because college students' taste changes all the time. LaCroix was huge this year with some of them. Next year it won't be. They're on diets, and they're gluten-free, and they're dairy-free, and they're, uh, who knows. But I keep track of all that kind of stuff because I always want to come to the table prepared to give them something that's good for them. And we want to come together as a church, as a body of Christ, with our hands ready, that we never come to this table empty-handed. So we've been studying the book of 1 John. Every time I see the bumper, I think of Hadaway. If you guys get that reference, or Night at the Roxbury. Okay, what is love? No, you get it? If you get it, you're awesome. If you don't, I'm sorry. Yeah, I always think of that, but I kind of echo the sentiments. I've heard Mark talk about how hard it is to preach to 1 John. I heard Aaron talk about how hard it is to preach to 1 John. Guess what I'm going to say? It's really hard to preach to 1 John. John's all over the place, but the thing that's really hard for me is how definitive he is. He's like Chris Krager off of, uh, Traeger off of Parks and Rec. He uses like absolute statements. This is literally the best thing ever, right? You have that friend that uses literally way too much. Right? It's like, this is literally the worst day I've ever had until tomorrow, right? Because you know what's going to happen. It's going to be literally the next kind of thing. And, and, and John speaks in absolutes. See, I like Paul. 
Paul's my guy. Paul's full of grace. Paul helps us understand how do we get from place to place. John's just like, no, definitive. In our text today out of 1 John chapter 3, anyone who hates his brother or sister in Christ is a murderer. Where's the wiggle room in that? Right? A murderer. Okay, like I'm used to Paul. Paul's like, don't be on the path to murder. You know, like don't let hate consume your heart. Like, yes, you're right. Let me not get there. No, if you do it, you're a murderer. He just speaks in so many absolutes. And it's so hard for me to wrestle with the theology of John because there's not that wiggle room that I need as a Christian. And so I want to wrestle with this passage today. We're in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 11. Okay, and I want to kind of wrestle with this concept of how do we love each other and what are we bringing to the table? So I'm going to read a few verses, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to go talk through them together individually. So you guys turn in your Bibles or your, or your devices. It'll be on the screen as well. 1 John 3.11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And here's that verse. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So let me go back and let me start in verse 11. We should love one another. Does anybody disagree with that statement? Good, okay. Because you're in church. (laughs) Like with your family and friends, uh, we should love each other. We understand this concept that we are supposed to love one another. It's the driving force of what makes us Christians because of the love of God that we've experienced in our lives and we give that love to others. It's good, it's true, it's pure, it's awesome. But then he goes into start talking about Cain and Abel. And it's kind of, to me, almost like a weird logical jump where he says we should love each other, not like Cain and Abel because of murder. And this passage I already have a history with. I, I struggle with this. Okay, so we got to go back a few years. When I was in high school, my, my parents came and started coming to College Heights when I was in late elementary school and it's been my home church since. And before we had the worship center, we had simultaneous services, one in the gym and one in the chapel, and they were going at the same time. And I think, I don't know if they were understaffed or whatever, but they thought it was a good idea to have high schoolers to help with the offering and communion meditations. So I'm in the gym one Sunday, sitting uh, there with a whole squad of my friends, paying attention I was a great kid. And, uh, and my buddy Nathan, he handed the bulletin to me and he goes, hey, did you know you're supposed to be doing the offering meditation the other end of the service? And I said, what? I didn't know I signed up. Maybe I did. Maybe my friend signed me up as a joke. I don't know. I'd never done any public speaking in my life. And I was like, I, what do I do? And I froze. I was, I was panicked. I didn't know what to do. And luckily, uh, uh, one of my friend's older brother, Casey Scott, uh, Mark Scott's oldest son, leaned over and he goes, hey, I'll tell you what to do. He was, a, he was an underclassman in Bible college, so he knew everything. So he went for it. He said, hey, just talk about Cain and Abel. I was like, okay, I, I don't, what, Cain and Abel, okay? And he said, he said, you know, God loved one sacrifice. He didn't love the other. We want to give a sacrifice that God loves. I was like, okay, I got it. So me and my squad, we run down to the, literally ran, okay, down to the other end of the building to get up there, literally, as this says, it was my time to get up on stage. I run up there, I go, you know, I'm out of breath, and I just like, Cain and Abel, they're, you know, like, you want to have, and I did exactly what Casey told me to do. I look out in the audience, my friends are rolling because they're idiots. And, and then everybody, kids, uh, they were not nice people, and I love them dearly, and I will never call them names again. I'm sorry, Family Sunday. I forgot. Okay. 
So, so my, my, my dear friends are laughing, supporting me in their own terrible way. And then I noticed that, like, the congregation's kind of snickering, too, and holding it back. And so I was like, oh, whatever, you know, I'll get this over with. And so I, I get done, I get, go back to the seats, and my friends are laughing at me, like, oh, you messed up. And I was like, what? I, I did exactly what you told me. I said, no, instead of saying Cain and Abel, you said Cable and Abel. <laughs> Not once, every single time. I told the story of Cable and Abel. I didn't know they were in the Bible. They're not. But, and I said it every time, and I was so paranoid. I was like, oh, i got to preach this passage. Oh, no, Cain and Abel's in it. I literally practiced over and over and over again saying Cain and Abel so I would get it right. Okay, so not only do I have this terrible like, time saying their name correctly, but this is in a really kind of an obscure passage. The Bible usually dumbs, us, dumbs things down for us and tells us what somebody did wrong. But in the situation of Cain and Abel, we don't actually have that much clarity. If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, where the story originally happens, okay, and you've got Cain, he works the fields, and Abel, he works the livestock. And so Abel brings a sacrifice of the livestock to God. Cain brings a sacrifice from the fields to God. And God, for whatever reason we don't understand, liked Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's. It could have been because it was an animal sacrifice. It could have been a whole host of other reasons. I don't understand. But for whatever reason, he liked one sacrifice better than the other. And whenever he liked that sacrifice, Cain got jealous. And so Cain killed his brother. And when God goes to find him, he goes, hey, where's your brother? And he goes, am I my brother's keeper? Maybe a term that you're familiar with, which Aaron Wheeler helped me understand. It's actually, he's basically saying, am I a keeper of brothers? Like, do I herd brothers? Am I a shepherd of brothers? Am I a brother's keeper? I don't know where these guys are. And he finds out, and then Cain is punished, and he's, you know, removed from culture and society. But we don't get to know much. You know, Ephesians 11 talks about it was by faith that Abel offered the sacrifice that he does. But here's the bottom line. For whatever reason, there was two brothers who brought sacrifices, and God loved one of them. Loved the sacrifice of one of them. He didn't love the sacrifice of the others. I want to have the sacrifice that God loves, don't you? Okay, so, so we get this Cain and Abel, and then we'll go down. Verse 13, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters. Mark clearly articulated this, Aaron did as well. Brothers and sisters in this passage is talking about the church. And while I think it's fair for us to think of the global church, like all Christians all over the world, I think that's a good interpretation of this. I actually want to take it smaller for us today. I want to wrestle with what does this mean in two categories? What is this passage as brothers and sisters in Christ at College Heights Christian Church? I want to talk about us. Those that were in the service before, those that are you guys that are here in the service now, how does this passage relate to us? And I also want to apply it to the communities in which we live in during the week, whether that's your small group, that's your Sunday school class, that's the support group that you're a part of. Whatever it is, we want to go, this, I think, is about us, and I want to bring that home to us today. And again, I think it's beyond the church. I think it's the global church can be obviously drawn from this, but I want to focus here on us today. It says, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If the world doesn't understand you, if the world has a tough time knowing what drives us as Christians or not understanding our practices, our beliefs, don't be surprised if the world hurts you, hates you. But if I can interpret these next few verses, I would say, but you should be surprised if the church hates you. Because we in the body of Christ, we've experienced something different, haven't we? 
We've experienced the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have hope that extends beyond ourselves. We know that Jesus Christ loves us in our brokenness, loves our brothers and sisters in their brokenness, and wants us to be unified and reconciled with each other. Don't be surprised if people who don't have this hope hate you. But you should be shocked if the people inside the body of Christ do. And then we get to this verse in 15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. How in the world do we get from the point of brother and sister in Christ to hating someone else? So I love Del Rio. Anybody love Del Rio? We are friends. I need to, okay, I need to clarify. I, I don't love Del Rio. I'm borderline obsessed with Del Rio. I am. And if you don't like Del Rio, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm going to prove it to you. I'm not even kidding. I don't remember the first time I went to Del Rio. I remember I got fajitas, but fajitas are really expensive, so I can't get it all the time. But then I found the lunch menu. Most of the time I'm there, I'm lunch. Never Sunday lunch, because come on, Sunday lunch restaurants, are you kidding me? Okay. But during the week I go there, they have a lunch special, and they get the flautas. Have you had these flautas? They're good. The chips and salsa, number one, are on point. Okay, the salsa's not too runny. Okay, it's not too runny. It's kind of got some consistency and thick. The, the chips aren't too thick, aren't too thin, and they're always there. I mean, I still am fascinated by the idea of being full before the meal starts. <laughs> so I, I go there and I'm like, and they got this lunch special, and not only do you get the flautas, but you get a drink with the meal, and it's still a good price. Come on, what's not to love? And so I, I began to love Del Rio. And so once a week, I'm not exaggerating, pretty much for the past four or five years, I'm at Del Rio. It's usually on a Tuesday or a Wednesday over the lunch period. I love Del Rio. Not only did I, my first initial experiences of Del Rio were positive experiences. I started to learn why it's so good. Okay, now some of you guys are going to disagree with me, and again, it's okay to be wrong. Okay. First of all, I know that there's better Hispanic food and that Del Rio's Tex-Mex. I don't care. It's still good. Okay? Not only this. Okay, now this is important to me because a lot of times when I'm going to restaurants, I'm meeting with individuals, and I need a space that's conduce- conducive for having a conversation. Okay? That's why I never go to Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. It's fantastic. Chick-fil-A is super good. I know half the people there, including the 14-year-olds that are working. In fact... At Chick-fil-A, I decided to stop being grateful. I never say thank you because I feel like I'm punishing the employees to say my pleasure. I'm not kidding. I show no gratitude when I go to, <laughs> to Chick-fil-A to give them a break. Don't they need a break? So I don't. I don't say thanks. <laughs> and so, and so I, can't go to, I can't go to Chick-fil-A because it's like there's so many people there, you know, and everything like that. And so I, but Del Rio, it's always good. It's good if you have one person you're meeting with, a group of people. They've got that space upstairs that you can reserve if you have a large group of people, which we've done on many times. It's fast, okay? It's super close to the church in Missouri Southern. It's a good halfway boat point between Ozark and here. And so it's a great place for me to meet with people. Okay, it's not too cold in the restaurant. I'm telling you, I've got reasons. I'm not making this up. It's never too cold. It's never too hot. The temperature's right. The music is never too loud. The service is really good. I'm not getting paid for doing this, but if somebody wants to give me chips and salsa, I'm okay with it. I like Del Rio. Okay, so much to the point that I can tell you what's wrong with the other restaurants. I'm not going to do that because I like people. Okay, I know Lalo's is more authentic. Yeah, okay, whatever. But it's not as a good meeting space. Okay, anyways, I don't know. 
In fact, I'm so obsessed with Del Rio. Okay, so one of the reasons I go to Del Rio all all the time is during the school year, every other week, I take our college-age interns out to lunch. And I take them out there because they're always hungry, because like I talked about before. And they, every week, I give them the illusion of getting to choose. (laughs) Hey, where do you guys want to go today? Oh, Del Rio. Oh. Now, this group of interns, they were fantastic. The year before that, they would fight every week. But they never learned the lesson that a group of interns learned years ago, which is all roads lead to Del Rio. (laughs) Okay, they can have the illusion of choice, but they know where we're going. In fact, I was meeting with some students. The other interns were gathering. This is about four or five years ago. The other interns were gathering to make a decision about where they were going to go to lunch. And they drew this on the board. This is my logical process of how all roads lead to Del Rio. This is not made up. This is a real thing. They made this, and they're right. Because this is how my brain thinks. I'm like, well, you know, we could go there, but we could go there, but we might as well just go to Del Rio. And so we go to Del Rio all the time. I love Del Rio. And I don't want to say that if you think another place is better, I hate you. I'm not going to go that far. But I will say you're wrong. Okay, so I was thinking about this not too long ago. And I thought, how in the world did I get to this point? I am lost. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, my, my raw personality actually likes experimentation and trying things new. But I find myself going to the exact same restaurant every time, ordering the exact same thing every week. They know me there. They know what I like. They know all this kind of stuff. How did I get to this point? How did I get to the point where I'm ready to fight somebody if they say something bad about Del Rio, that sacred place over there? And it made me think about this text. And I ask this question, how does somebody go down the path of hatred? Nobody decides that they're going to hate another person. Nobody decides that I'm, I'm going to really be angry. I'm not going to be able to get along. I don't want to connect with this person. Nobody starts there. They start at some place far simpler. But if this is true out of 1 John, then how does that happen for us? And so that was a question that I asked myself. And I think I came up with four steps. And I'm not talking about hatred in general. I'm not talking about how does uh, culture and society and people groups stop, start hating each other and what's that part? I'm not trying to tackle that at all. Instead, I'm trying to wrestle with how do we as Christians go from the point of loving our brother and sister in Christ, which is modeled for us in the person of Jesus, to the point where we are separated, isolated, and maybe even hating our brother and sister in Christ. So if you're going to go with me, I want to figure out this path to hatred. Okay, I think step one starts in a very simple place, which is our own experiences. So from a positive trail, we start with something that's really good. I mean, haven't we all had something that we love that we get to experience in and through the church? Maybe it's our favorite song that we get to sing. Maybe it's our favorite preacher that gets to preach, which mine is becoming Aaron Wheeler very quickly because that was awesome last week. Okay. Okay, or maybe it's, maybe it's the favorite program that we get to have. Maybe it's that one person that comes up to us and always gives us a hug and tells us that we're good. Or, or mine is Juanita in the first service who laughs at every one of my jokes, even if they're not good. You know, like we have all of these positive experiences. And of course, because it's a positive experience, we want to reinforce that positive experience by duplicating it. Whenever that one worship leader's up on stage, the tall, skinny one, I like that guy, Alec. I know his name. 
You know, or, or it's the preacher that I like, or it's the Sunday school class that I like, or it's the small group that I like, or it's the material that I like, or it's the book of the Bible that I like, or it's this conference that I went to that I really like, or it's this program that I really like, or it's these individuals. And we want them to spend more time in those things. It's human nature. That's great. And so the thing that actually starts us on this path of hatred is enjoying our own experiences. But maybe if there's this trail of positivity that leads to this path of hatred, maybe there's also one that starts someplace a little bit more negative. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you've actually had a really bad experience. Maybe instead of having your favorite preacher, maybe you've had someone that you trust and look up to say something that is mis- they misunderstand or they didn't say well or it was harmful to you. Maybe it's someone who doesn't handle the word of God so well. Maybe it's somebody who doesn't sing the songs that you like or you prefer. Maybe it's someone who's mean or cold or callous to you. And so in the same way, that initial experience starts us on that path, and it's one that we want to avoid. So we kind of roll our eyes whenever we find out Quaddy's preaching, you know, or, or we, we get frustrated whenever we see that this individual's up on stage or this person finds us at a distance and just complains about how broken their life is or, or this, whatever it is, and we begin this process because of the wounds that we've encountered in our life. And a lot of times those wounds are inc- incredibly justified. So that first step is our own experiences. That second step on that path is where we then validate those experiences. The way that we oftentimes do that is we find people who share the same experiences as us. So when, on that trail of positivity on this path to hatred, it starts whenever we have someone that, that goes, man, that conference was good. It was so incredible. And man, I love that song. And, and they worship alongside you and you guys reminisce about how great it was and the things that you guys have in common. And it begins to reinforce the power of what you began to experience. Not only that, but we start to look for scriptures. What are the scriptures that validate this? And we find three or four. I even found a scripture about Del Rio. Man does not live on bread alone. Now, don't finish it because then it's out of context. But tortillas are oftentimes made out of corn, not wheat. So just think about that, okay? Yeah, but we, we do. We find these verses, and sometimes they're kind of random, obscure verses. But we can usually find three or four that prove our point. So it's not just this is our experience, but this is why we're right about our experiences. And our friends, we begin to, to isolate ourselves with people that believe like us. And maybe, on our, maybe those that start on the path of negativity, it's that we find people that have been hurt like us. People that go, yeah, I can't believe that they do that. Why do they say that? They never understand us. And we begin to find people like us, and we begin to find the verses to prove that why they're wrong. And we just validate and we validate. And then it leads to that third step, which is isolation. Because the more that we find people that believe just like us, and the more that we listen to them, the less we listen to people who are on the other side of an issue. And we further isolate ourselves through passive ignorance. Because if we're listening to this side of the issue, we don't necessarily want to know what their side of the issue is unless somebody on this side of the issue tells us how to interpret what's going on in this side of the issue. You know what I'm talking about? And we get camped in and we get isolated and we stop spending time with the people that believe things differently than us. We stop engaging those that see the world differently. We stop asking questions of people that are different than us because we know we're right because God's word says we're right. And because all these other people tell me that we're right. And we further isolate ourselves into the point where we become the seeds of bitterness set root in our heart. 
Maybe not against individuals. Maybe we're not so bold as to say, but we know people in that camp because they don't listen to us, they don't understand us. The people, if they lived in my shoes, if they knew what I was going through, but they're not, they're too obsessed with what they're going on, and I feel isolated and alone, and we remove ourselves further and further from the collective body of Christ into our individual circles of people that believe things like us. And then just one step further is hatred. And again, most people never get to that point where they go, I hate this individual, but we'll go, no, we don't like that principle. We don't know what they stand for. And very passively, we create separation in the body of Christ. And then we bring to the table our hurt, our frustration, our anger. And Jesus never lets this said, even on the Sermon on the Mount, when he's redefining what anger is, he says it starts in our hearts. And while we might not be so bold as to act upon our anger, we all know we all know what it's like to have that bitterness against individuals and programs and situations and preachers and worship leaders and Sunday school class and leaders and elders and college-age ministers and brothers and sisters in Christ, and we become separate piece by piece as we go through this. So you think First John, John would give us a solution to this, and he does. So let's go back to First John chapter 3. Starting verse 16. 1 John 3.16 definitely has some parallels to John 3.16. I don't think John intended it that way, but this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister, a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So how do we know what love is? We look to the cross. More specifically, we look to sacrifice. Where Jesus sacrificed himself, his will, his desires, his well-being for the sake of us. And that's what he says love is that we should have. And then he gives kind of three categories. He said, let us not love with just words and speech. Okay? And I think in that passage, I think words and speech are a part of sacrificial love. I think in that church at the time that he was writing to, as the letters being spread out, that's what they needed to hear. But I want to take those three kind of things, material, possessions, like our actions, our words and our speech, and in our truth. I want to break those down a little bit and look at what does sacrificial love look like? How do we not go down this path of hatred, but how do we choose to love like Christ loved us? Starting with our actions. And he's very specific here as he talks about material possessions and seeing people in need. And I know this can be taken on a global scale, and it probably should be, as we wrestle with what are we doing for Christians all over the world as our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering. And I think that's an appropriate use of that passage. But I want to, like I said earlier, bring that to us here at College Heights today. I know that when we give of our tithe and our offering, we engage in what God is doing in Joplin and in throughout the world and in this church. But I think sacrificial love goes beyond that to having the generosity of heart and spirit where we're ready to respond in a moment's notice. My wife and I, we have our ties. We have it, you know, automatically pulled from our account, okay? Like, I I don't have the joy of actually giving. Does it make sense? Like, and there's something precious about giving because I've been the recipient of gifts so many times. People coming in and, sliding us a little bit of money or buying our meal or, or, or giving us some clothes or just doing something out of generosity of the heart. And it almost seems like it falls at the perfect time for us every time. Any of you guys ever been here a recipient of someone's generosity? 
Aren't we grateful for this? You know one of the major obstacles for us giving sacrificially is actually our logic and reason. Because we've been trained to not be foolish with the resources that we've been given. We've been trained that somebody's going to abuse it or they're just going to not take advantage of it or they're going to go back and they're never going to get out of this and they don't have a job and they don't have all this kind of stuff. But there's no exception for that in this passage. It doesn't say give generously to those who deserve to be given generously. It says whoever has a need. But some of us know that there's actually needs that we have and how are we supposed to meet their needs when our needs aren't even being met? Well, he gives a condition for that, which we'll come back to in a minute. What are you bringing to the table in a heart of readiness to engage the needs of our church, College Heights? Because we should. So then he says, in our words, in our speech. Okay, now I think telling someone that they love them is incredibly important. That we get to be vessels of communication of the truth of God to the other people. I had a college student one time. He was uh, dating this girl. And they got in a fight, and he wanted to come talk to me, and he was really frustrated, and he goes, listen, I told her that I love her. I don't know why she needs to hear it all the time. He said, I haven't changed my opinion, and plus, she needs to believe what God says about her, not what I say about her. And I said, oh, buddy, I love you. (laughs) Because it is a sacred responsibility that we have to be communicators of God's truth to each other. And you know the power of having someone speak that truth into your life, don't you? To have someone go, do you know how much God loves you, how much God treasures you? Do you know how important you are to me and to God? And, to, and I think even sacrificial love for some is actually saying those words because you weren't raised in a home in a culture where they, you heard those types of things. So maybe the sacrifice for you is to even say those types of things to people. But I think for me personally, one of the greatest sacrifices that I can use for my words and my speech is to not say anything at all. For me, a sacrifice is to listen. To go up to the people that I know are struggling or frustrated or wrestling with something and go, hey, can you, can I just listen? I don't want to offer any opinions. I don't want to offer any advice. I just want to hear your heart because what your caring deserves to be heard. I think that's sacrificial love with our words and our speech. And then we sacrifice our love with our truth. I think truth oftentimes can be used as a weapon where we find truths that support a position that we already believe and we almost use it to try to convince the other person. I believe absolute truth resonates from the person of Jesus Christ. But I don't always trust my interpretation or the interpretation of others of that truth. And it's usually not because they're doing something malicious or it's not because they're trying to hurt me or they're trying to be ignorant of something. It's just because because I don't understand enough. There's always levels of understanding that I have about who Jesus Christ is and his actions and his character and his truth. And I'm always learning and I'm discovering. And instead of me trying to use that truth to win people over, what if I use that truth to create connection and unity with each other? Maybe the greatest, the greatest gift that we can give someone is not trying to convince them of our position, but to understand their position. 
and to wrestle with truth together. Maybe it's not bad to live in tension as a church. Maybe it's not bad to live with people that are on different sides of the issues as long as we don't allow that separation of understanding to create disunity amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ. Shouldn't we fight for that? Isn't that the best use of truth? To bring about unity, not division? I so desperately want to have the humility to live life with people that are different than me, to understand their perspective and allow Christ to bring us together into the unified truth, not me. What's so hard when you start living this way is the question is who wins? I remember early in marriage, before I really understood the Bible, I was reading Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And then I just, then I don't know how I missed it, but then I just read the verses before that, which is husbands lay down your life for your wife as Christ laid down his life for the church. Okay, that's easy. So wives submit, guys die. Who wins? That's not the point, is it? That's not the point at all. In fact, most of you guys that are married or really any type of friendship or relationship, you know this. That you can use the truth in a way that actually damages. I have a couple, uh, I have a friend of mine, we met this week. Uh, him and his wife are trying to figure out an issue together. He came to me and he goes, okay, I need you to help me kind of sort through this. And he gave me kind of the logical process of how he was thinking the decision needed to be made. And it was fun as we sat there and go, so what do I do? Just tell her that? And I go, oh, buddy, <laughs> I don't think so. Because you're representing the truth that makes sense to you. But there's truth that makes sense to her that's just as valid. And the whole point of your marriage is to have unity and to serve each other. And that's the example that Christ has given us as the church. As Christ laid down his life for the church, we lay down our lives for each other. But there's all these situations. Because some of you know what it's like. You come and you've got wounded hearts because of things that have been said to you. Justifiably wounded hearts because things that have been done to you. So how are we supposed to build unity when we ourselves have so little to give? How are we supposed to give sacrificial love when we're burned out, tired, stressed out, annoyed, frustrated, hurt, wounded, isolated? How are we supposed to do this? Are we at all times supposed to martyr ourselves for the sake of others? Well, 1 John talks about this too. Chapter 3 again, verse 19. I'm going to read 19 through 21 and then skip down to verse 24. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, how we have peace about our decisions. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we can have confidence before God. Verse 24, and the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit that he gave us. There are situations and times where we can't give everything that we have. There's situations and times where we probably shouldn't give everything that we have. And we have to know that the Spirit of Christ is guiding us in those decisions. Real quick, how to know his voice. This isn't trying to be exclusive about how to know his voice of the Spirit in every situation, every time. This is just for the context of our passage here today. But I think we can know the Spirit of Christ's voice if we know what he's already said in his word through his Son. And if we're lined up with that, we can trust that. We can know that God is speaking to us are calling us to do something when it fits within his definition of love. 
which is sacrifice, denying of self, and giving ourselves up to others. Okay, we can know that it's God's will that we give sacrificially to someone when there's an opportunity. And I'm, I'm kind of giving up on the open door, closed door thing because I don't trust if I know what an open, closed door looks like most of the time. I'm not kidding. If God's given me an opportunity, I want to run with it. And if it doesn't work, so what? It didn't work. The, last, the worst thing I did was waste some time, some money, some energy in an attempt to be a blessing to someone. But the best way to know the voice of God is to say yes to Jesus all the time. And the more that you say yes to him, the more you'll know his voice. And the more you know his voice, the more that you'll be able to help others with this type of sacrificial love that he has called us to give. So if there's a path towards hatred, there has to be a path toward unity. How do we walk down that? The path to unity, I think it starts in the same spot, which is our experiences. And here's this. If you have a good experience, you should talk about it. If you have a bad experience, you should talk about it. College students are getting ready to come back. The first three months of the school year, I always do the exact same thing. I meet new students and I help returning students unpack their stuff. Because they had all these experiences, good and bad, over the course of the summer, and they need to talk about it. And all they need to do from, from all they need from me is to listen. We should be that to each other. Whenever you have experiences, good and bad, we should talk. You should tell us about the things that you're happy about and the things that you love. You should tell us about the things that are a struggle for you and the things that are a burden to you. The gift is that we get to listen. For those of us that are validating our experiences, trying to find people like us that think the same way as us and and isolating ourselves like them, you should find people that aren't like you to make sure that you have that counter voice speaking into your life. I feel a tremendous blessing that I'm every semester getting to meet students that are nothing like me from different parts of the country, from different racial backgrounds, gender. They're different gender than me. They're different experiences, different upbringings, different perspectives, uh, perspectives on life. And I get to hang out with them and learn that our God is so big and so beautiful. And my concepts of truth are way more contextual to my part of the country and the time that I live in than I think. As I get to experience the world through other Christians' eyes, it helps me have a more robust view of the kingdom of heaven. To those of you that are coming from a negative experience, talk it out. Make sure that you're not just listening to people that are hurt like you. But it's good to talk to those that have hope or those who are energized that live in a different world than you. We should use the truth of Christ to to liberate, not divide. We should use the truth of Christ to bring unity, to not try to convince someone of speaking the truth, to speak our truth, but maybe learn to live in that tension and that it's okay that people are hurt, that people are frustrated, that people are wounded, that people come from bad experiences. It's okay that we get to be the brother and sister in Christ by loving them in it. To those of you that have isolated yourselves, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for whatever drove you to that. And I know it was probably a whole pattern and a whole long time period of separation. I'm sorry. Come back. Come back. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but man, would you take that step 
to have that conversation with the individual, to express your feelings to someone, whatever it is for you, would you please come back so nothing separates us in the body of Christ? Would you be the first one to make the move? Would you be the one who rushes and races towards reconciliation? Let's be the body of Christ that he wants us to be. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for us, for the future believers. And I always assumed in that passage that his prayer would be that we help save the world and that we help everybody come to know the name of Jesus Christ and that everybody has the opportunity here. But that's not Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays in John 17 for unity because he knows that unity is something that the world can never offer, but we can. It's something that the world can never fully understand because they haven't experienced the death of Christ, which is the unifying thing that brings us all together and the thing that we come to celebrate every Sunday morning as we worship together. And we get distracted by the function of a program and we miss out on the person of Jesus Christ who died for you and me. And we have that in common for all of eternity. Let's celebrate that, my brothers and sisters. And not let the minutia of preference divide us as a church and fulfill the prayer of Jesus Christ that we might be unified. Even if Christians aren't over in the world or even in Joplin, Missouri, let College Heights be unified. Not because we believe everything, because we agree with everything, but because we love our brother and sister in Christ sacrificially more than we love ourselves. How am I going? <laughs> So here's the question. What do you bring into the table? You come every Sunday morning with something. Is it hurt? Is it pain? That's okay. Just share it. Is it joy and excitement? That's okay. Just share it. Have you been blessed financially? Then come share it. Are you in need? Then come share it. Let us be the representation of the body of Christ to a lost and broken world. So for this, it has to start with me and it has to start with some apologies. And I want to apologize in two different camps. And I'm serious. I'm not trying to be nice. This is really what I feel. I want to first of all apologize as a member of College Heights. All the transition that we've gone through over the past four years is hard on me too. And it's hard for me to come sometimes excited on Sunday morning. It's hard for me to come anticipating. And so I withdraw My heart's not in a good place. I'm not ready to worship or celebrate. Sometimes I'm just here because of the discipline of coming. That's not fair to you. I'm sorry. I really am. I want to be here because I'm excited to see you. Because I'm excited to worship. And I'm sorry that I let real life things like the difficulty of all the transitions get in the way of me being present for you on Sunday mornings. Let me put on a different hat. As a minister of this church and a leader as a part of this congregation, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I don't always understand the tradition, all the transitions that we're a part of. Most of us on staff went to college to understand how to understand the Bible and how to love on people, not how to run organizations. (laughs) But here we are in this huge organization. We're trying to figure this out and we know people are left behind. We know that not everybody's heard, not everybody's understood, and that people are hurt. I'm sorry. If that's you, I really am. 
I know that's never been the desire or the heart of the leaders that I work with every day. Can you give us some grace? Can you help us become healthier by engaging each other, by serving each other? So what are you bringing to the table? Because you're bringing something. And I want so desperately my sacrifice to be like Abel's, one that God receives, that is a blessing to you, a blessing to this church, and a blessing to the communities that I live in. What are you bringing to the table? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we have to engage you and each other as we collect on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. Lord, I know so many hearts are heavy because of the burdens that we carry, because of the experiences that we've had, both good and bad. But Lord, help us take one more step towards unity and one less step towards a path of hatred. 